Good morning, church. Welcome in, everyone. Let's stand to our feet. Our call to worship this morning comes from Ephesians 1-7. It says this, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So church, pay attention to that good news. We have forgiveness of sins through His blood and through His blood alone, full atonement. So we're going to sing about this morning. We're going to celebrate. Sing together nothing but the blood. White as snow 
church you can have a seat that's good news that we celebrate that it's it's nothing but the blood that we have redemption through but the good news is that that's all we need that our debts are covered by that blood welcome to fellowship fave everyone my name is ryan i'm a worship pastor here um, at the church we're excited that you've gathered and joined us um, if you're new um, it's your first time at Fellowship and in Fayetteville. We've got a QR code. We'd love you to scan that. We'll get you connected um, if you would like to be. There's also information at the info booth in the foyer if you'd like to get connected and find out more about our church. Um, we've got quite a few announcements, so bear with me here, but they're fun announcements. So if you didn't know, Easter is next week. One week from today, we're going to be celebrating a risen king. We do that every single week, um, but this week um, we get to really lean into the celebration of the resurrection. And so this Saturday at 5 p.m., we're going to have a service. All four of these services are going to be the exact same. You just get to pick which time you want to come to. And so Saturday at, at 5 p.m., and then we'll have three services uh, Easter morning, so at 8 o'clock, at 9.30, and at 11. Uh, there's no child care at any of these. We want you to bring your families, all the kiddos in this room will all worship together as a big family. So if you haven't chosen yet, pick which service you're going to come to and plan on that. Uh, this Friday is Good Friday, and so we, we, we are going to um, celebrate and and pay attention to that in, in a few different ways. And so we will have communion available in the 3-6 Theater. It's on the west end of the campus, the far west end, uh, Fayette Kids 3-6 Theater. And so that's going to be available all day from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. And so if you want to come and observe communion, uh, come in that day. You can come by yourself. You can bring your family. And communion is going to be set up for you to take on your own there if you wish to do so. It's a time of reflection, prayer, partaking in that. Uh, and then also that evening at 7 p.m., Celebrate Recovery is having uh, their um, Good Friday service. And so if you've been interested in checking out Celebrate Recovery and haven't yet, this is a great time to do that. So this Friday um, at 7 p.m., they meet in the Student Center. Uh, also, we've got some Holy Week devotionals we would love for you to engage with. And so if you will follow the QR code there on the screen, um, there are devos that you can follow through um, with every, every day this week. And so another way just to kind of posture our hearts as we um, prepare for the celebration that's to come this weekend. Um, well, church, um, all of the celebrating is good and it's exciting, but um, let us not forget the devastation that's kind of happened over this past week um, just down the street from us in Little Rock and different cities in our state where... Um, were hit hard by um, a tornado that came through. And so <clears throat> we as a church want to extend a hand of help. Uh, we want to pray diligently for these communities, but also we want to help financially. And so if, if you are interested in that, then you can scan this QR code or, or go to the website 
And if you want to give to help um, with the rebuilding, to help meet any needs um, in Little Rock, the surrounding areas, and this is an opportunity to do so, um, any donation that you give will go straight to that. And so I know a lot of us are looking for ways um, to help out. And so it might be that you load up in the car and you go and, and you help physically. Um, but this is also another way that you could do it if you want to help and give financially. Um, so there's that opportunity as well. And I want to pause for a second. And I want to pray not just for Little Rock and, and all these communities affected by the tornado, but it's just been a tough week. And I know that a lot of the things that have happened have been in close proximity to some of us. Um, the evilness that occurred um, in Nashville in the school shooting this past week, it hits home um, because it's, we know it's, it's hitting closer to us, it seems like. And so we know people in Little Rock. We know people in Nashville, and our hearts are breaking. And so if you would, let's, let's take a moment. Let's pray together. Well, Father, our hearts do break, and, and in our minds we question and we don't understand why disaster comes we don't understand evil in the word in, in this world but father what we can cling to is hope hope in your son Jesus we have the ultimate hope God we may not see purpose in these things because they just don't make sense to us and we understand that that we may not even see the good or the purpose in those things until we meet you in, in all your glory. And so, God, would you give us a peace? Would you burden our hearts for one another as we see one another struggle? God, would you give us the means, the, the desire to serve and to love, God, to point people to you. God, my prayer is that in the midst of tragedy, in the, the midst of this uh, the misunderstanding, God, that your people would shine through, God, that we would be known by the fruit that you've given us through your Holy Spirit, that we would serve, that we would love, that we would care for those in need. So, Father, you have equipped us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you move us, God? to serve and to meet needs. And we be the church you have called us to be. And God, give us a peace that goes beyond understanding. When we don't have answers to these things, God, we can pray for peace. God, you have delivered it so much in the past through your son, Jesus, and so it's what we cling to. May we respond and worship because of the peace that you've given us, because of the hope that we have in him. Father, we love you. Help us to see you more. Take these hands. Lift them up. For I have not the strength to praise you near enough. I have nothing. I have nothing. Take my voice and pour it out. 
Let it sing the songs of mercy I have found. For I have nothing. I have nothing without you. And oh, my soul needs so. Let's stand together. As a church and as a church body, let's, let's confess corporately. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a Savior. Church, and for those of us that to believe we do in fact have a savior in Jesus. We have hope in his life, death, and his resurrection that we will celebrate so thoroughly next week. And we have hope. So church, believe the good news. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him we are a new creation. In him we have forgiveness of sin. In him we have a savior. 
To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Oh, every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Sing it again, church. Oh, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you every hour. Every hour I need you. You are my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made you alive with Christ he forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us he has taken it away nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross this is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. How are we this morning? It's a beautiful morning out there. Um, it's, uh, it's a special week in the church calendar. This is uh, uh, Passion Week, Holy Week. This is Palm Sunday. Um, on Friday, we'll be celebrating uh, Good Friday. We'll be re reflecting all week. Next week, next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. Uh, and we'll celebrate together. Uh, my name is Garland. Glad to be with you. Welcome. If this is your first time joining us this morning, we're really glad you're here. Um, let me kind of set the stage for us where we're going to go uh, real fast this morning. Um, this is the Rubicon River. Uh, it's, it's not all that impressive looking. Um, it's kind of nondescript. Um, but in 49 BC, a guy named Julius and some of his uh, friends, associates, colleagues, that they crossed this river. It's in northern Italy, and they crossed this river. Now, if you were there that day, if you were just fishing downstream and you were to look over and see Julius and his kind of crew go through, you might have zero awareness of the significance of that moment. In fact, you may see the, the moment pass right by your eyes and go right back to fishing and think nothing of it. But this day, 49 BC, when Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon, the, the meaning, the significance of that moment would actually echo for centuries to come. I mean, if you were downstream just fishing, you would have no idea in seeing them cross that river that in this moment, this is going to set the stage for centuries of 
empire with the Caesars at the helm. Like, there'd be massive advances in technology under this empire and also massive loss of life to the tune of maybe tens, if not hundreds of thousands, ushering in one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. In fact, even to this day, we still refer to moments of great point of no return decision as the crossing of the Rubicon. But just down the stream, you would never have known the meaning. Less than 100 years later, in 33 AD, if you just happen to be a bystander, maybe you're one of the tens of thousands of Jews who had come into town for Passover to Jerusalem. And on Friday, Good Friday, as you approach the city walls of Jerusalem, the temple ahead of you, the city around you, as you come to the walls, you approach, you'd see a very familiar scene. Another day, another cross, I mean, the Romans have gotten really good at putting down revolutions after all. And as you got nearer to the the crosses outside the city wall of Jerusalem, you might be thinking, these fools, I mean, they should know better than to cross Rome. Whatever they did, they probably had it coming. And as you approach the, the walls and you had a, a crowd gathered around and maybe you even begin to inquire, what, what, what's the charge? I've come from out of town. What's going on? And it might surprise you to hear as, the, as they begin to, to answer that question. This man claims some wild things. But the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, I mean, all of them were in unison delivered him over to the Romans. And they're the experts after all. They, they know better. They know best. I guess we know about this Jesus guy. Whatever intentions he had, they are long gone now. I mean, there is no way that Yahweh, that our God could be on the side of somebody executed and humiliated like this. There's no nobility in this. There's no honor in this. Rome is still in charge. Our exile still lingers. And Yahweh still seems silent. If you were to check the headlines the next day, or you were to get on the Twitter feed coming out of Jerusalem on, in 33 AD that afternoon, none of the headlines would say, the world is dramatically different because of this moment, or the true king has taken his place on a cross, or forgiveness, it's yours. In fact, it probably wouldn't even have made the news. We're buried in the back page. Another day, another set of Roman crosses. And this, this puts a question before the ancient bystander and the modern one as well, by the way. And it's a profound question. In fact, this might be the most significant question you could ask or answer in your life. And that's whether you've been following Jesus for a really long time or you were here this morning and you were a skeptic, you don't know about any of this Jesus thing. And the question is this, it's a profound question, and we all have to answer it. What happened? What happened on the cross? We all have to answer it. Now, was it just another unfortunate, gruesome death? A more powerful army defeats a less powerful person. 
as sad as that might be, tragic as it might be, that happens all the time. It's still happening in our world to this day. There's nothing all that special about that. Or maybe, was it, was it an unjust death? An innocent person killed in the wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. As sad as that may be, we still see stories like that even to this day all over the place, or maybe worse yet. Did he get what he deserved? I mean, a fitting end to a person claiming some radical and crazy things. Or was it something more? We all have to answer this question. And depending on how you answer this question, like how you answer this question literally may change everything about your life depending on how you answer it. It's that profound of a question. And this morning, whether you've been a Christian for a really long time or not, we all have to answer it. And I'm gonna invite us in to a week of thinking about the answer to this question. We have one in our room hanging right here every single Sunday. What happened on that cross? We all have to ask and answer it. Now, if I were to ask, I think many people in this room, many Christians that I ask, you know, what happened on the cross? What, what's the cross all about? I think we would get an answer that goes something like this. Jesus died for my sin. He, he died to forgive me. And we would, we would individualize the story of the cross, say he died to rescue me, to pay for my sin. And by the way, that's certainly beautiful and true. But what, what I'd like to do this morning is I want us to, to see some, the, some of the other facets of what happened on the cross. If you've ever been diamond shopping before, I've only had to do it the one time, um, when you go in there and you, do, and you, and you shop for a diamond, uh, it's very intimidating, and they begin to give you all this knowledge of the four C's. I can't remember there. It's a cut, uh, clarity. What are the other ones? I never forget. What are they? What is it? Color and, okay, oh, the, yeah, how big it is. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> by the way, if you are ring shopping right now, if you're like, no, no, if you're in a dating relationship right now, just look straight at me, okay? Don't look at your girl, okay? Because no matter how you look at her, it, you might say the wrong thing with your nonverbal communication. You either could look too excited and give it away, or you'll make a face that looks like fear, and you don't want to do that either, okay? Just look straight ahead at me. By the way, if you are ring shopping, let me just help you here. If you want to get a super impressive one, you know, I want to make sure that it's really amazing, just calm down, okay? There's always a bigger one. All right, there's always a more impressive one. This is the biggest one we found so far. Um, but here's what I wanted this morning. Um, you ever had that experience? When you go in there, uh, they put the diamonds in those little cages with the black felt underneath, and they put the spotlights on top of them, and the really nice ones have their own special cage and a little stage that spins it. And as you go look at it, what they're doing is they want the spotlight to hit, or the little light. And as the, as the diamond turns, all the little cuts of the diamond, those facets begin to sparkle. And you can see its brilliance and its beauty. And it actually gets, you see more of that beauty the more lights hit it and reflect. This morning, what I'd like us to do is we tend to emphasize one of the facets of this diamond. And it's beautiful. And it shines. But I want to turn the diamond just a little bit under the light. And to do that, this is going to be our, our outline. We have to ask and answer the question, what happened? And we're going to real simple today. The problem, the solution and it's going to demand a response. The problem, the solution, 
in our response. Simple. This is where we're going this morning. If you got your Bibles or phone, whatever you got, I want your eyes on it this morning. Go to Colossians chapter 2. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. It's why we're going here today. I'm going to invite us in to reflect. First, we have to see the problem that is articulated in Colossians chapter 2, because then the solution begins to shine. First, let's see the problem. Um, this, is, this is the understanding of the cross from a Jesus follower in the first century. His name was Paul. Uh, and so let me just help you get some context for Colossians. He writes this letter to a church in a city in what we now call Turkey. At the time, it was called Asia. And uh, it's a city called Colossae. And Paul's addressing some Jesus followers there. And uh, as he does, he gives them these words. Now, if Paul is right, hear me. If he is right, this is Paul's answer to the question, what happened on the cross? And it's just one place, by the way. We could go a lot of places. But if Paul is right, everything about your life is different. Everything. You cannot leave here the same. And if he's wrong, then ignore this whole thing. Okay? It's this profound. Let's look at it. Here's the problem. First, he says, when you were dead. That's fun. It's a fun start. Notice he doesn't say, hey, when you made some bad decisions or, you know, maybe when you uh, broke some rules. No, no, no. He zeroes in and says, when you were dead in your trespasses, or the NIV translates this word as sins. Now, almost immediately, especially if you're not a church person in the room, like you're, maybe you're not a Christian in the room, the word sin begins to, in your mind, sound like all that Christian-y language. Sins. It's a very churchy word. Paul says, you're dead in your trespasses. What does he mean? What is sin? Now, let me just take you to one other spot where Paul, I think, articulates it well, the the idea of what sin is. In Romans chapter one, he says this. And the idea, I think, behind it is he's thinking of the God of the Bible who has, has desires to bring blessing and goodness to humanity. Like children, he wants to bestow on them all that they need to live a life of security and meaning and success and blessing. If they would just trust him, he's given them all that they need. And yet, those children, instead of responding to him, wow, that's awesome, they said, he says they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks, but their thinking became, became futile or empty and their foolish hearts were dark. And they said, we know better. Instead of receiving from God the the blessing of this is the way to joy, they said, we can find happiness on our own. We are autonomous. We know better. It says, so they exchanged, verse 23, the glory of the immortal God for cheap imitations. God says, this is the way to joy. Trust me. Humans said, no, 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 no. We don't trust you. In fact, we know the way to true joy. We'll find happiness on our own. By the way, this is Genesis 3 language. Wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, all those cheap imitations, they've promised to bring us joy. And we keep chasing after them. And they always underdeliver. John Piper is a pastor, theologian, reflecting on this. He says this, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. This is interesting. He says, no one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness, and that promise ends up enslaving us. We chase cheap imitations, and they never satisfy. We clamor for them, and they never satisfy. 
the first part of our problem, we're going to see three, just in these three verses. The first part of our problem is what we might just say we have personally trespassed. We have personal sin, a personal sin problem. And I think for most of us, that's as far as we go. What's the story of the cross? We have a sin problem, personal sin problem, and Jesus came to forgive us of that personal sin problem, okay? I want to show you the problem's actually way worse than that. Look at what he says next. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the, okay, what the heck? Dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And if you look at the context above this in your Bible, if you kind of scroll up or look up with your eye, verses nine down to verse 12, it's all this language about circumcision, a circumcision with hands, a circumcision from God, a circumcision with the flesh. What is going on here? What Paul has in mind is an ancient covenant that he made with Israel, which was designed to bring blessing to Israel that they might be a light to the nations. It's now resulted in hostility between peoples. In Ephesians, he says it this way. Let me show you how he says it in Ephesians. This is a companion letter to the Colossian letter. He says this, remember, he's talking to the church in Ephesus and there's a, a, a church that's come together made up of Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, and they don't like each other. And yes, that's a problem. It's part of the great problem of humanity. And to, the, to that church, he says, hey, Gentiles, remember that you're called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. You can almost hear the hostility in that right there. And he says, here's your lot in life, Gentiles. By the way, most of you in this room, Gentile, all right? Gentiles, me, Gentile Arkansan, all right? Here's what he says, verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, here it is, without hope, without God in the world. Uncircumcision group, Gentiles. How was a Gentile supposed to experience God's blessing? Well, God had chosen a family, the family of Abraham, and said, through you, I'll bless the whole world. If you would trust and obey me, you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But instead of trusting Yahweh and being a light to the nations, Israel became like the nations, filled with injustice and idolatry. And the law, God's Law, we read it in the Old Testament, it's designed to allow Israel to be that light. But instead, the law now, it exposes Israel as guilty. It was used as a way to exclude the Gentiles. It condemns both Jew and Gentile. We might say it this way. We have a social disruption, a social unrest, a social disharmony. And we can look at it not just in the Bible and see, but we can see it all over our world. The hostility between peoples and tribes and races, it's not a new thing. And every week here on Sunday morning, we just did it a few minutes ago. This is why we say language like this as part of our liturgy. We have not loved you as you deserve, and we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. but it gets worse. Look at the third thing. Paul starts talking about the rulers, the powers, and the authorities. He does this all over the place in his letters. He really is concerned with the powers and authorities. Anybody hearing this letter in the ancient world, I think one thing comes to mind almost certainly when they hear this language. 
It's the power of empire. That power that enslaves, that says, bow down to me or else. You must follow us, love us, worship us, get in line with us or else. And empires rage and shout, and they've done so in the ancient world and the modern world. But Paul has something even more subtle in mind. Remember a couple of weeks ago in our Daniel series, we talked about this dark, sinister, if you were here, this dark, sinister power of evil in the world? Paul knows that there's a power behind the throne of Rome. It's this dark power of sin and a spiritual rebellion. Earlier in Colossians, he calls it a, the dominion or the domain of darkness. In Ephesians, he says, you were enslaved by the prince of the power of the air. The problem is pretty grave. We have personal sin. There's social disharmony. And we're enslaved to idolatry and injustice. There's a dark power, and it's got its clutches around everything at a broad level and a near level. Can you see how these actually work together? The problem is all intertwined. These aren't separate things. My personal desire to make a name for myself, my personal thinking about only my bottom line, my personal autonomy, we all act like little gods. And when we do that, it necessarily creates social disharmony. Do you see why? It's pretty obvious. We think about me, my group, my tribe, my clan. We say they're them, other, different. And the Bible's gonna come along and say, actually, there's an enslaving power behind all of that, and it's whispering that evil into this whole mess. It's our problem. Glad you came to church today. Glad we're here. By the way, this is just one passage. So what's the solution? Now, this is important. The problem and the solution, that they, gotta, they have to match. You see, when the problem and solution don't match, you can either overreact or you can way underreact. You, you really learn this when you have kids. Now, I know a lot of you don't have kids in the room. Uh, I've got three of them, and you really learn how the problem and the solution have to match when you have children. Let me give you a, a couple examples. One from uh, a failure on my part, okay? Uh, don't email me. This is not a story I'm proud of, all right? So it's one of my, my, uh, my worst parenting moments, but if you were a parent in the room, you've done it too, okay? So here's what happened. Uh, Titus was, this was probably three years ago. Titus is my oldest. He was probably seven or eight. And he has a little iPad thing. Uh, and uh, I had noticed that with this iPad, he had gotten pretty protective about it and acted like he had a right to just play it whenever he wants it and saying, hey, screen time's over. He looked, for several weeks, he was looking at me like, yeah, right. Um, and it was starting to really frustrate me. Um, one, he was sort of just uh, totally rejecting any authority that I have, but also I'm concerned about the screen. Like, I have a reason. And uh, this had gotten worse and worse and worse. And then we, we found him kind of sneaking it when it wasn't supposed to be screen time. And like, he's like up in his room and he's playing a, some game uh, like Minecraft or something. And it was at, screen time wasn't, wasn't uh, on right now. And it kind of boiled up for me. Now, this is not a moment I'm proud of, all right? Let me show you where the problem, the problem is he needs to learn how to interact with screen time better, uh, respect authority a little better. 
okay? But here's my solution. It's not great. Um, I had kind of boiled over. He had the iPad, and I saw it. I walked over, grabbed the iPad of a sin, and I said, if you do this one more time, I'm going to break this iPad over my knee, and I'm going to give it to a kid who will really appreciate it. <laughs> now, there's a couple reasons why that solution. Don't email me. I know it's bad. I'm not endorsing this. A couple reasons why this is bad. Uh, number one, um, that's not how you teach somebody anything, okay? Uh, number two, I was angry, and I let my anger get to bed. I had to apologize later. By the way, Sarah loves to remind me when my problem and solution aren't matching, my wife. Uh, another reason, I hadn't thought through the fact that it's an expensive piece of equipment, and now I'm gonna have to go buy another one probably, and I really hadn't thought about the fact that I can't give it to another kid to enjoy when I've already broken it over my knee. Like, I didn't think that the logic goes out the window. That was an overreaction. You can also have an underreaction. We had uh, people in our family that uh, they had a newborn and a little infant and they took the baby in and the baby was not gaining any weight. That was losing weight. And they were going, what's going on? Like, we, this baby should be gaining weight. And the doctor was going, oh, you know, uh, it's not that big of a deal. Let's try this formula. Let's try this. And, um, you know, let's, it'll be okay. We'll come, come back in a couple of days. They came back a couple of days, still losing weight. And you could tell, like, this malnourished. No, it's fine. It's fine. Then they're going every day. And after about two or three days of this, the pastor said, we need you to do something different. They ran a couple of tests, and they come back. This, this, this little girl has cystic fibrosis. She's not getting any of the nutrients that she's eating. That's an underreaction to a much more serious problem. These have to line up. Our problem's pretty grave. So what's the solution? Uh, let's look at it. Now, uh, just, this, is, this is not part of the solution. I just want to show you. Um, who's the agent of the verbs in this paragraph? Now, notice, when we get to the solution, notice I'm bolding the subject and I'm underlining the active verbs in this, all right? And notice, God, he, by the way, it's gonna be God, God the Father or the Son, it's God, 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 God. God's doing the made alive and forgave and canceling and taking away, nailing and disarming, public, but God, 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 okay? He's the agent of the solution. Can I show you what we bring to the table, our verbs in this passage? That's it. Dead. That's what you bring. Okay, let me show you. Let me show you one more time. Go back. God. You. You get it? He is the rescuer. He is the solution creator. He's the agent, not you. Amen? All right, all right. Now, come on now. Amen? All right, now, let's look at it. Our problem and our solution first. He forgave. Forgave all of our sins, having canceled the charge. Now, we're so familiar with forgiveness language, I think, I think we can get numb to it. Oh, of course, of course, he forgave. But when's the last time you thought about it? I was listening to a, a debate just a few days ago, actually, between uh, now deceased uh, Christopher Hitchens, who was a very kind of strong proponent of atheism. He died, I think, 2011 or so, and another person, they were uh, debating back and forth and he was mocking the idea that there was a cross necessary for God to forgive, mocking it. And he, he, he was going on and on, and he said, uh, it is outrageous to think that that's required, a cross. God could just forgive if he wants to. That's silly. And maybe you're here this morning, you're going, I find this whole thing off-putting. Why a bloody cross? Now, my response to Hitchens might be something like this. He may not have ever had to forgive something 
that really crushed him. We all know that for small slights, forgiveness is quite simple. But for the deep wounds, for the deep cuts, oh, it's very costly. I think Tim Keller can help us. He's a pastor up in New York City, and he says it this way. He starts with a, a, a financial illustration. He says, to cancel the debt brings us to the very heart of forgiveness. In fact, it's in our Colossians passage. It says, if I take a loan from someone and then say I can't pay it back, and the creditor forgives my debt, that means she absorbs the loss. Notice it. Someone pays. Someone absorbs the loss. Either the borrower or the lender. In small little debt, a few dollars, a few hundred dollars maybe even. But the greater the debt, the more you have to absorb. He then applies it to deep wounds. He says, forgiveness means that when you want to make them suffer, instead you refuse to do it, this refusal is hard. It is difficult and costly. Because through it, you are absorbing the debt yourself. Forgiveness may have been free for you and me, but it's always costly. Don't miss that. First part of our solution is forgiveness. And I think that's, like I said, that's a far, about as far as many of us go. Let's turn the diamond. Let's turn the diamond. We then see, notice what he says. That legislation that stood against, that both condemned the Jew and condemned the Gentile, and all the hostility that goes with it, he says, it's been taken away and nailed to the cross. In Ephesians, verse 16, he says, he's become our peace, making the two groups one. And in one body, he brought reconciliation to both Jew and Gentile, to God and to each other. And he put to death their hostility. It's gone because of the cross. Second piece of our solution is reconciliation. Reconciliation to God and reconciliation with each other. It gets even better. Check this out. Don't miss this this week as we, as we ponder this and think through this this week. You know those powers and authorities? By the way, when we look through the pages of our Bible all the way back to Genesis 3, the, the dark evil force, that dark sinister power called sin, it's undefeated. It never loses. There's nobody that stands across from that power that doesn't get knocked out until the cross. It says there, he disarmed the powers and authorities. He embarrassed them publicly, triumphing over them on the cross. All that sinister force called sin behind so much of the evil in our world, there, the powers were rendered impotent and embarrassed. Now, Paul's really clever here. He's using the idea of a Roman victory parade. When, when the Romans conquered a people, conquered an army, they would march them back to the capital, with the Caesar in front, or the conquering general, then the, the lieutenants, and then all the army, and all the spoils that they've conquered from that people, and then the army that they had defeated, bound, embarrassed, and people are spitting on them, and jeering them, and mocking them, and most of the time, many went into slavery and many, they would line them up for a mass crucifixion, sometimes thousands of crosses long. And what Paul is saying is the very instrument 
upon which the powers demonstrate that they win. That, that is where Jesus embarrassed them. The darkness, literally the darkness on Good Friday gathers around Jesus, and that evil takes its biggest swing against him. It it's, lands its strongest punch. Next week we're going to celebrate. Jesus absorbs it. He embarrassed it. You know, what, what, what power? Now, we might, call, we might say, in Jesus we have victory over the powers and authorities, forgiveness, reconciliation, victory. And where did all these meet? On the cross. On the cross. Do you see how they work together? If I've been forgiven much, now I can look at somebody, even somebody different than me, even somebody I don't agree with, even an enemy, and reach out in reconciliation because I've been forgiven and I've been reconciled. And when Jew and Gentile can get together in the same room, both forgiven by the, the Savior Jesus and love each other, it actually tells the world the powers have lost, they ain't got no power anymore. And it all meets on a cross. We just want to turn the diamond just a little. We could get a lot more, by the way. Now, words often fail. I'm doing my best here, but words often fail. This is where I think imagination can help us. C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I think he's able to, by showing us the story, he's able to show us some of these facets of the diamond in a way that's really hard for words to do and a PowerPoint slide to do. So we're gonna watch just about two minutes of, uh, it's a very uh, powerful scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you haven't seen the movie or read the book, um, then I'll set it up a little bit. Uh, the, the character kind of reflecting God in the story is represented by a, a lion. And there's been a human uh, who's kind of a snot and a brat, and he's, he's um, wedded himself to the evil, wicked witch. And there's a law that says uh, justice must be served, justice must be done. And we're gonna see what the lion does, presenting himself to the witch and see the facet, see the diamond as it turns in a way that I think only imagination can help us. It's hard to watch. Let's watch this together.
like a defeat. What happened on the cross? You have to answer that question. Another New Testament writer will say it this way. See the lion, the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David, the king. He's one. This is not a humiliating loss. This is the victory. How? I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if the rulers and authorities knew what was happening, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Because there's the victory. So what happened on the cross? Demands a response from you and from me. Another unfortunate death, an unjust act, an accident of history, with a day, forgiveness and reconciliation and hope and victory over the sin and sin and the powers was accomplished. To get you thinking, as we turn to take communion, just a couple of thoughts: one, a couple of ancient, a couple of modern. Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel." Looks like shame because it's power. It's the power of God for salvation to anyone who would believe, to the Jew and the Gentile. Word from Piper earlier, hear him now. He says, life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross. Cherish it for the treasure that it is. Cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What once was foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in the world. We sing it. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon a tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured, love untold. British scholar N.T. Wright says, when Jesus died, the powers lost their power. And they can still rage and shout, but the power of Jesus is stronger and it is the power, to say it clearly, of forgiveness. The past is blotted out. A new world has begun. A revolution has begun in which power itself is redefined as the power of love. I invite you this week to answer that question. To think about the answer to that question. It changes everything. Our ushers are gonna come forward and they're gonna pass the communion elements out and we're gonna take communion together here in just a few moments. So hold them and I want you to think about this week, his body broken, his blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Hold the elements and we'll take them together.
Let's stand together and sing. Wait. 
of that night he met with his disciples for a very special night Passover they'd been liberated from slavery and set free through the blood of the lamb they said pointing to me my body which is broken for you as often as you eat of it remember me take meat Later, he took the cup, the cup that they drank every year to celebrate forgiveness and salvation. He said, the cup, it's my blood. It's poured out for many. Hear it for the forgiveness of sin. When you drink of it, remember me, church, take and drink. Forgiveness, reconciliation, victory over sin and death. They're yours and they're mine in Jesus. This morning, if you don't know that story, I'll be sitting right here. I'd love to process with you in the prayer room. They love to process as we leave this morning. Can we together sing these words? These words be on our lips as we leave. Amazing.